Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine, advancing medicine through precision diagnostics and novel therapies. Your host is Dr. Lee Friedman. Especially given our aging population, lumbar spinal stenosis is a problem being increasingly seen in physicians' offices today. What are the latest surgical approaches to this disabling problem? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. William C. Welch, Vice Chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania Health System and the Perlman School of Medicine. Dr. Welch, thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Friedman, thank you, and ReachMD. Well, we're very excited to hear your insights on this common problem. Uh, are you seeing more lumbar spinal stenosis as the population is aging? Without a question. I think it's exactly as you said. It's related to the fact that the population is aging, but as a group, they certainly appear to be healthier than I remember much of the population in this age group when I would see them in the 1980s when I was a resident. Their lives are being restricted frequently because of spinal stenosis, and they would like to know if there are treatments that are available to them. Can I think of spinal stenosis as presenting primarily with leg pain? Do we see back pain or other presentations with this? There are two components to at least lumbar spinal stenosis. There's the central component where the canal the cross-sectional area of the canal becomes reduced. The canal itself can then be shaped like a smaller circle, if you will, or it can be shaped like a trefoil, a Napoleon hat trefoil. Mm -hmm. Very commonly, when it's shaped like a trefoil, the lateral recesses, the sides of the neural canals get narrowed. So the nerves exiting the spinal canal get narrowed. That causes the, quote, lateral recess syndrome, which can certainly manifest as sciatic-type pain or femoral neuritis, neuritic-type pain, as opposed to the more standard cross-sectional area narrowing, which presents as neurogenic claudication. Specifically, the patient's legs get heavy or feel heavy after walking a distance. And in terms of distinguishing the latter, the, the neurogenic claudication from vasculogenic claudication, are there some things on history or exam that should point us one way or the other? In my years of training, I've been told that there are, I've been told that patients with vascular claudication have a set distance. Um, but the truth be told, I, I know of no specific or even particularly sensitive physical exam finding that differentiates the two. Um, I will tell you that this aging population is healthier and they have smoked much less, if at all. And I will tell you that it is very rare today that I a true vascular claudication. Mm -hmm. If I have any question, I'll feel the patient's pulses, of course, look at their feet and send them for um, Doppler studies of their lower extremity arteries uh, or arteriobrachial indices. Um, but it's, it's quite rare today, to be perfectly honest. Very interesting. And, and if I have a patient who has uh, claudication symptoms and they have a non-focal neurologic exam, is it appropriate to empirically treat with an NSAID or a steroid, or would you recommend making a firm diagnosis with imaging? I, I uh, do not image unless I'm willing to act on the images. I wholeheartedly support clinical treatments unless there are red flags, fever, sweats, chills, anything that would suggest an epidural infection or a discitis uh, or weight loss suggesting perhaps cancer. But assuming those red flags aren't present, then I absolutely agree with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines. Frankly, physical therapy. We did a NIH-sponsored trial about 10 years ago looking at physical therapy in the elderly population. 
And it was effective, at least in the short term, and it's quite reasonable to offer to the patient. So if uh, in the absence of the red flags, it is appropriate to empirically treat with physical therapy and NSAIDs. Uh, do, do we ever then go to a Medrol dose pack, that type of thing, orally? Medrol dose pack, even epidural steroids, tend to work better for ridiculous-type symptoms, um, as long as the patient understands that. My personal experience is that these are, provide temporary relief for the patient. Either an epidural or an oral steroid is, um, if the if the doctor feels it's appropriate, is, is can certainly provide temporary relief. But it is generally speaking short term. And if someone has failed uh, therapy, they're not getting better. Uh, then think about uh, more procedural approach and imaging. Exactly correct. The best study, of course, is an MRI, and that's frequently the only study that we obtain. And that can be done without contrast for this indication. Exactly correct. And and if we do see some significant spinal stenosis, are there some procedural options that patients have? Right. Well, they certainly have the epidural option, but again, I would expect that to be temporary. Then there are a host of surgical or minimal surgical options available to the patient. One hallmark feature that many of the patients have is that they will improve with lumbar flexion. They'll describe pushing a shopping cart while shopping and the fact that they are bending forward over the shopping cart allows them to walk nonstop for longer periods of time. That group of patients may, and I say may, benefit with uh, surgical procedures that include interspinous process devices. These devices force the interspinous processes apart. Uh, they, to a certain extent, replicate the idea that the patient is bending forward, and they have um, been examined in the short term six months or so in the more medically infirm patients, and they are reasonably effective in certain groups of patients, and some physicians do recommend those. So that's a lesser surgical-type procedure to be considered. The other surgical procedures involve removing material that's causing nervous system compression, specifically the cauda equina and nerve roots. The most common operation I do is a laminectomy, an incision, then removal of bone and the uh, ligamentum plavum and arthritic overgrowth, facet overgrowth. You can do that surgery in any one of a number of different ways. You can do it through a tiny incision. You can do it through a medium-sized incision. You can do it through a very large incision. But the goals are all the same, no matter what the incision size is. The goal is to increase the circumferential diameter of the spinal canal when possible and decompress the lateral recesses, uh, more so on the side that the patient has radicular symptoms. And the extent of the incision depends on the uh, number of levels involved or what other factors? Preferences of the physician, preferences of the patient, number of level involved, the, how extensive the surgeon wants to be or how, how extensive the procedure. And with minimally invasive procedures, are, are any of these being done on an outpatient basis or are they all at least one night in the hospital? If it's very limited, one level, perhaps even two levels, um, they can be done as an outpatient. Typically, we like to watch the patients overnight for uh, any one of a number of reasons, mostly um, because they're more sore the next day than they are the day of surgery. Mm -hmm. But also, these are older patients, and they, they can certainly have complications related to their age, even if they're in very good health. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Welch, Professor of Neurosurgery and Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. 
Dr. Welch, why don't we move things up the spine a little bit? How do things differ when we're talking about stenosis in the cervical area? Typically, the patients with cervical stenosis uh, present with the gradual onset uh, of gait disorder or the loss of the fine motor skills in the hand. If they have central spinal cord, central narrowing of the spinal column with spinal cord compression, those are very subtle findings. Um, many of the more sophisticated patients will note, especially the women, that they can no longer put their jewelry on. They have lost the fine motor skills required to assemble jewelry. Men will notice that they can't button their buttons as well as they used to. Both groups will notice that they can't play hard or, or play cards or manipulate the newspaper edges quite as well. Frequently, the um, ability to sign one's name, type, play the piano, deteriorates, and it occurs over time. Some patients, depending on where the problem is and how severe it is, will actually present with uh, ambulatory troubles. They're, they will walk, they'll use the expression walking as though I'm intoxicated when I haven't had a drink. Sometimes the spouse will notice that the patient is having subtle tripping, trouble getting in and out of a car, sometimes trouble climbing stairs. So a subtle, gradual uh, development of these kind of symptoms should alert us that maybe there is something going on with the cervical spine. Exactly, and uh, very well stated. And, and on physical exam, are we looking now for clonus and hyperreflexia? Exactly. The clonus, in my experience, is fairly advanced. This isn't, tends to be a group in their 50s, 60s, and later. Uh, so the key differential for the physicians is to, as best as you can tell, and sometimes you simply cannot tell with certainty, to try to be certain that the patient doesn't have an, another upper motor neuron disease, such as a demyelinating disease or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So we certainly look for any cranial nerve deficits, uh, which might uh, indicate that the patients have multiple sclerosis, intracranial lesions. Uh, we look for tongue fasciculations or muscular fasciculations, which can be a hint that the patients are having um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis as opposed to cervical stenosis. And then, of course, the neurologic exam. If the patient has stenosis at C6, C7, and we examine their reflexes, we would not expect brisk biceps reflexes necessarily at the C5 level. But we are looking for increased reflexes. We are looking for upper motor neuron findings such as pectoral responses, deltoid reflexes, Hoffman signs, Babinski signs, ankle clonus, uh, and the such. And Dr. Welch, we see these findings and we get the MRI and it does show cervical stenosis. Are our treatment options the same as for lumbar stenosis? Dr. Friedman, in general terms they are, but with some subtle differences. The real difference is that in the lumbar spine, uh, most surgeons today um, will only fuse something on the order of 10 or 20 percent of the patients. The reason we do fusions in the lumbar spine is if we believe that the patients have instability or that we have created instability through the process of the surgery itself. The instrumented fusions are the addition of bone screws and rods plus bone placed over the transverse processes to strengthen the spine and we hope get a solid bone union. This can certainly help with back pain um, and it can certainly help or even correct uh, slippage of one vertebral body on another spondylolisthesis. I will not infrequently, if I have any concern about uh, spondylolisthesis or instability developing in these patients, I'll just take the bone that we removed during the laminectomy and use that on the transverse processes and place the patient 
in a brace for about six weeks. That's a non-instrument infusion, and that's quite effective as well. In the cervical spine, many of the patients at the point that they present have some evidence of spinal cord injury. Usually on the MRI scan, we'll see changes in the spinal cord, T2 signal changes in the spinal cord, which may be consistent with bruising of the spinal cord, scarring of the spinal cord, or just injury of the spinal cord. In many of those instances, we believe that fusing at that segment, or the segments above it and below it as well, afford the spinal cord some form of protection. Now, that's not 100%, but many surgeons feel this way. The other option we have in the cervical cord and cervical spine is that we have a fairly easy approach to the patients either anteriorly or posteriorly or rarely both. So if we think that the compression is mostly from the front and is hitting the ventral aspect of the spinal cord, or if we think that patients are fairly kyphotic, have a forward flexion of the neck, it's not uncommon that we'll take an anterior approach to a discectomy, put bone or other material into the disc space, and put a plate on front to keep the patient's neck in a neutral or slightly extended position while affecting decompression of the spinal cord. From the posterior approach, it looks similar to that of the lumbar spine. We'll do a laminectomy generally today with uh, instrumented fusion screws and rods to essentially protect the spinal cord. An alternative for some patients, even with myelopathy, is disc replacement. I don't do many of these, but these have been shown to be at least safe and reasonably effective, just as all, all the surgeries are that I just described in the cervical spine in patients who have myelopathy, that is to say spinal cord dysfunction, or myeloradiculopathy, spinal cord dysfunction, and nerve root irritation. Very interesting. When you do the anterior approach, uh, is, is there a lot more uh, soft tissue, the, the carotids, the thyroid, a lot of other tissues that you have to consider versus the posterior approach? There was an editorial, an opinion piece written when the anterior approach first became popular, and the editor basically described all the structures that the surgeon needs to go past to get to the spine. Uh-huh. It's one of the scariest things in the world. <laughs> Typically, it's rather straightforward. Typically, it's a straightforward dissection, typically done with your finger. The platysma muscle is cut. Then it's an interfascial dissection, protecting the carotid artery, protecting the esophagus, and just retracting tissues as needed. It's a, it's a common procedure, and if there's any question, we'll have an ear, nose, and throat surgeon assist us. Dr. Welch, as we look forward to the next five to ten years, are there some advances you see coming with these surgical techniques? Uh, Dr. Friedman, there, uh, I believe, will be continued technique development for the minimally invasive procedures. Uh, I think there's a continued refinement, and I think there's a continued understanding as to which patient groups might best benefit with the minimal procedures and which patient groups, frankly, simply need larger surgical procedures, including stabilization. There is a continued understanding that for specific problems of the spine, surgery is the more effective technique in the long term, whereas for other problems, surgery is equivalent or perhaps even lesser, a lesser technique than non-surgical techniques. So I think it's a continued definition of the patient population and the application of surgical techniques in general. With regards to the surgery itself, we've made great strides over the past 20 years in reduction in infection complication reduction, really performing the surgery more safely. For instance, 
many of these uh, I perform with spinal anesthesia, done over a thousand with spinal anesthesia, so the patients don't even get a general anesthetic. So I think there are no um, tremendous discoveries in the next five to ten years, but without a doubt, there's a continued refinement and a continued understanding of the application of surgery and non-surgical uh, techniques for these patients. Well, I very much want to thank Dr. William Welch, the Vice Chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania Health System and the Perlman School of Medicine for outlining for us today both the approach and the therapy for these common problems of lumbar spinal stenosis and cervical spinal stenosis. Dr. Welch, thank you so much for your insight. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. To download this podcast or to access others in the series, please visit reachmd.com slash pen and visit Penn Physician Link, an exclusive program that helps referring physicians connect with Penn. Here you can find education resources, information about our expedited referral process, and communication tools. To learn more, visit www.pennmedicine.org slash physician link. Thank you for listening.